How concerned should we be about Omicron? An update on the new COVID-19 variant as we hit one year of having access to the vaccine. Baseball's offseason grinds to a halt. We'll hear from one of San Diego's iconic voices about the labor fight and how it affects the Padres. And behind the scenes at the demolition of San Onofre. I'm Matt Hoffman and this is KPBS Roundtable. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. So we're incredibly excited. In the next 24 hours here at Rady Children's Hospital, we'll be receiving the Pfizer vaccine for COVID-19. This is an incredible time. I mean, this is the first time in, in the past seven months we actually have a very proactive way of uh, being able to combat COVID-19. Uh, we've been very reactive uh, over the past year, and appropriately so, because this is an epidemic of, that anybody could, no one could have imagined. What a year it has been. This month, we're marking the first anniversary of the first COVID-19 vaccines arriving in San Diego. That sound was from the COO of Rady Children's Hospital, Dr. Nicholas Holmes. He was talking to media when they got the word that the help that they've been waiting for was finally on the way. Optimism was high after months of lockdown measures because our community had no real protection beyond wearing masks and staying away from crowds. But now here we are. It's December 2021. Vaccines are widely available for people as young as five. Adults can get a booster and some places don't even require appointments. Here to reflect on the past year with the vaccine, what scientists have have learned and why we're still struggling to put this pandemic behind us is Jonathan Wozen. He covers biotech for the San Diego Union Tribune, and he's been leading pandemic coverage here locally. Welcome back, Jonathan. Good to be back. Thanks for having me. So we went back and put together some sound from the arrival of the vaccine that we'll play in just a moment. Now, you've been covering this extensively from the start, like so many other local reporters. Big picture, though, Jonathan, how are you reflecting on that time last year and where we're at right now? Well, I think there are two things that have really surprised me and, and stand out in my mind about the vaccine rollout. One is how quickly it all happened. And the other, frankly, is how badly we needed a vaccine and how badly we still need the vaccine. In terms of speed, we really went from not knowing that this coronavirus existed to developing a vaccine and getting that out to the first batch of people within a year, which is completely unprecedented and, and frankly pretty remarkable when you look back on it. Uh, and really, if you just think about vaccine development in general, this is something that takes many, many years. You know, we still don't have an HIV vaccine 40 years uh, into HIV. So imagine where we'd be with COVID if no one had been vaccinated versus, you know, more than 2.5 million San Diegans. 
Now, let's go back to that big day. It was December 15th at Rady's, and for those listening, you'll mostly be hearing the voice of Ron DeLucy. He's the pharmacy manager at Rady Children's Hospital, and Jonathan, we'll get your reaction in just a minute. open up the box here and there's a little uh, digital data logger there to keep track of the temperature during shipping. Each box has 195 files containing 975 doses. What do you mean this is going to change the way we live right now? I certainly hope so. The vaccine represents hope for our staff and our community and we're very excited to be a part of it and help distribute it. Just as a, as a person, you're, you're handling the first dose that you get here at the Children's. What's, how's that make you feel? Very excited. This, you know, like as I said before, this vaccine brings a lot of hope to the community and to our staff. And so we finally have a chance to, to have an intervention that can really help improve uh, care and improve um, health in the community. Very excited. That seems like it was so long ago for some of us who've been covering this very closely. But listening to those moments, Jonathan, did it bring back any memories from your work covering the vaccine's arrival? Oh, definitely. Uh, yeah, I, I remember that day very well. I think it was a Tuesday morning. I remember showing up at Rady Children's Hospital probably around 6 a.m., 6.30 a.m. in the morning. It was very dark, very cold. Showed up there with a photographer, Casey Alfred, and uh, you know we were there with the Rady's team uh, essentially waiting for that first shipment to arrive. It's probably you know the most highly anticipated uh, mid-size FedEx van in recent San Diego history because that's the way the vaccine doses came in in this FedEx van and uh, sort of a packaged box that was kept with a lot of uh, insulation materials to keep the vaccine doses cold and I remember talking to Ron and there were some other reporters really mild-mannered uh, soft-spoken reserved guy and all these other journalists were uh, and asking him in maybe a dozen different ways to sum up the the mood and, and the spirit in that moment. Uh, I think the one word that we used in our story that he said was that there was really this feeling of hallelujah when those, that vaccine came in. And uh, you know, Dr. Nicholas Holmes, the chief operating officer at Rady, talked early that morning about the vaccine marking a shift in the fight against this virus, really from defense to offense to having this really powerful tool that healthcare workers could go out and administer to the community. So that was all happening early in the morning. Uh, we wrote up a story as quick as we could, and then basically came back in the afternoon for the action, which was the vaccination, because you know the vaccine vials were frozen, so they had to warm up uh, for a few hours. So came back to Rady, and it was really a festive atmosphere. You know, It was like Christmas had come early for some of these health healthcare workers. People had been on the front lines of the pandemic for months who had you know, lost patients, some people who had lost family members. Uh, I remember speaking with, with folks who had lost relatives to COVID. So it was definitely a, a festive atmosphere. And that's a, a day and a clip uh, and a moment in the pandemic that, uh, that I'll remember for a very long time. We're speaking with Jonathan Wozen. He's a reporter for the San Diego Union Tribune, and we're so glad he's here to talk all things COVID. Let's shift now to the news of the week, the big news that has a lot of people concerned about a possible another setback. How big of an issue is this new COVID-19 variant? It's being called Omicron. It seems like everyone right now is talking about it, but there's a lot we still don't know, right? Absolutely. And, and frankly, the, the short answer to the question of how big of an issue is this variant is, is really that it's a bit unclear. And 
that's a picture that'll clear up in, in the coming weeks and uh, maybe months to some degree. And that's because there are these big questions that are out there that haven't been answered yet. And that comes down to, is Omicron more transmissible than Delta? If so, how much? How well do vaccines work against this variant? If you're infected with Omicron, are you any more likely to end up in the hospital or to even die from COVID uh, compared to an infection with previous strains like Delta? So those are at least three huge questions. We don't really have concrete answers to any of them. At this particular point in time, uh, there's no reason to believe that Omicron will be uh, sort of a game changer in the sense of the vaccines being dramatically less effective. Uh, We have a lot of tools against this virus that didn't exist a year and a half ago in terms of the vaccines, in terms of our understanding of how effective masks can be. Uh, You know, there's some hints that monoclonal antibody treatments may not be as effective against Omicron. We saw a statement from uh, Regeneron to that effect, but but there's no clear data on that just yet. On the flip side, you have people like Erica Ullman Sapphire at La Jolla Institute of Immunology, who's part of an effort to test literally hundreds of different antibody treatments against the, the different strains out there, including Omicron. I was actually speaking with her yesterday. So there's a lot of work being done, not too many clear answers. Uh, I, I would say definitely cause for uh, careful research, but not necessarily alarm given everything we've learned and all the tools we have against the pandemic at this point in time. Yeah. And I know you mentioned right there, you know, not necessarily cause for alarm yet, uh, but there is definitely a cause for concern. And I know uh, myself, somebody who's new to sort of the health reporting field, um, it seems like that there's some signs that, you know, medical experts can see when it comes to, hey, we think that this vaccine or we think that this strain is going to be less susceptible to the virus. Um, And and Jonathan, is that because, you know, we're hearing, you know, with Delta, which we know is more contagious, that it mutated maybe about four times, but we're hearing maybe um, that Omicron is mutated about 30 times. Is that why officials? are sort of worried that uh, it may, uh, you know, elude some of this uh, vaccine effectiveness? Yeah, that's a good point. So, and and that's definitely true. So Omicron seems to have about 30 mutations in the part of the virus's surface called the spike. That's the protein that actually grabs onto your cells and allows the virus to infect them and start replicating inside of them. So, you know, when you have that many mutations, there's some chance that uh, a few of them or several of them uh, individually or working together uh, may allow the virus to be less sensitive to antibodies, less sensitive to other aspects of the immune response. There are things in principle that are concerning, uh, and that's true, and that's why researchers are paying such close attention to this strain. Let's sort of wrap up here with some news for you professionally, Jonathan. You'll soon be joining Stat News. It's an online outlet that focuses on life sciences. Now, this is a big loss for San Diego, but tell us more about your new gig and the kind of content that readers should expect to find at Stat News. Well, I'm hoping it's not too big of a loss because I'll still be living in San Diego and I'll be joining Stat specifically to cover uh, life science and biotech along the West Coast. And, you know, we are us and the Bay Area are basically the two hubs of life science activity in in the state. So I I expect to still be, you know, writing quite a bit about the research, basic research about the pharmaceutical companies and the biotech companies here, as well as in other parts of the state. So I I figure the new role will look a little bit like 
the current one, but maybe for a bit of a different audience, a broader audience. Uh, but yeah, Stat News, uh, just to give you the quick rundown, is basically a health and science-focused news organization that started back in 2015. They're part of the same umbrella company as the Boston Globe. Uh, and so they they do a lot of biotech and, and pharma coverage essentially year-round. I mean, I think they've gotten a lot of visibility because of the pandemic and uh, a lot of the work that they've done on that front. Uh, but they, they sort of focus you know, pretty specifically on um, on that sector. And I think it, it'll be probably good for for them to, you know, have me out here and it'll be good for me because uh, there's a whole lot to cover and, you know, a whole lot to learn that I'm still exploring. So I, I think people, if you've liked things I've written for the Union Tribune, you know, I think uh, Stat News will probably be sort of uh, more of the same and, and maybe diving a little bit deeper into what these companies are really doing and what they're really contributing. You're staying local, so then we'll look forward to having you back on soon then. I've been speaking with Jonathan Wosen. He's a biotech reporter for the San Diego Union Tribune. And thanks so much for your time, Jonathan. Absolutely. Anytime. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. We came to Texas to make a deal. Um, we committed to the process, we made proposals, and it just did not happen. After the owners' meeting in Chicago, I made clear the rationale for an off-season lockout. It's the norm in professional sports, and we feel it's the best strategy to protect the 2022 season for the benefit of our fans. We made the mistake of playing without a collective bargaining agreement in 1994, and it cost our fans and our clubs dearly. We will not make that same mistake again. We understand it's bad for our business. We took it out of a desire to drive the process forward to an agreement now. If you go to the Padres' website these days, it's a much different place. Gone is any mention of off-season player signings or trades and the young face of baseball. Padres superstar Fernando Tatis Jr. is nowhere to be found. That's because he and all of his teammates are blanked out and replaced by dark, generic silhouettes digitally erased from the team's roster page. The orders come from the top, with Major League Baseball owners imposing a lockout this week. It's the first disruption to labor peace since the disaster strike that wiped out the World Series a generation ago. Here for a quick check on where this is going is a familiar voice to San Diego radio, former sports talk show host and broadcaster Lee Hacksaw Hamilton. Hey Lee. Matt, good afternoon. We knew this was coming. It has arrived. I fear it's going to go on for a long period of time and the first days of the lockout have now been hammered by a war of words that's broken out between Rob Manfred, the commissioner, Tony Clark, the head of the union, 
and there will be a lot of rhetoric going forward. And you made reference to them erasing all the pictures of all the players and all the all the columns that were written about free agent signings. That's really ticky tack. Why are you doing that to your fans? You want to continue to sell your teams and what they've accomplished and what might happen going forward. I just I was stunned when I woke up in the morning and I saw what they had done to each of the major league teams website. Really ticky tack. But this this civil war of words is going to go for a while. And if you could just clarify for some of our listeners, what's the distinction between a lockout and a strike? And is this something that's sort of all about money? Everything is about money. Everything is about a pie that keeps getting bigger and bigger. And I want a bigger share of the pie. Uh, A strike is when players withhold their services. Last time we saw it was the bloodshed that happened in 1994 in the middle of the pennant race that effectively killed the Montreal Expos franchise and robbed Tony Gwynn of a chance to hit 400. A lockout is we're not going to do business the way we've been doing business until we come to terms on a new collective bargaining agreement. There's no damage done by triggering a lockout in December. If they had just continued to talk and nothing got accomplished, and here came spring training, and the players decided we're not coming to camp, now you got real significant financial damages. And then, of course, if it spills into the regular season, then the players stop getting paid and the damages get even bigger. So I'm not panicked about the lockout, but that's the background and the difference between the two. Uh, you know, a lot of fans have really enjoyed seeing a lot of these free agent signings and some of these blockbuster trades among teams, but that's all on hold right now, right? Exactly. There is no business at all. And all we're getting now is the rhetoric. And I use I used the term war of words. Rob Manfred on Thursday morning said, we're not going to allow baseball to go back to what happened in 1994, which is when they killed half the season, things like that. Uh, he said, The union's vision will not allow half the teams in baseball to be profitable. Now, Tony Clark, San Diego native, head of the Union Player Association, he says the free agent system is broken. Now, how stupid a comment is that, Matt? Within the last 48 hours, baseball teams spent $1.6 billion in free agent signings of guaranteed contracts for all the stars of the game. To me, that system does not look like it's broken. Now, the system, I think, needs to be changed. And I'll tell you the other factor in the equation, Matt, everything in these negotiations is like a chain link fence. One link is tied to another link as it relates to dollars. The missing word in all this rhetoric that we've gotten in the last 24 hours, the missing word is partnership. And that's what I think they have to adopt to find a solution because the pie's big and they all want a bigger slice of the pie, but there needs to be a partnership not me beating you at the negotiating table. At least that's my one man's opinion on that. I've been talking with Lee Hacksaw Hamilton, longtime sports talk show host and broadcaster here in San Diego. You can get his best 15 column at LeeHacksawHamilton.com. And thanks so much for your time, Lee. My pleasure all the time, Matt. Thank you. Talk to you again. It can be hard to relate to millionaires and billionaires fighting over money, especially if you just paid rent in San Diego. Housing is only getting more expensive and it's changing our neighborhoods. It's also the focus of a special forum KPBS is putting together next week. Here's Christina Kim with a preview. Gentrification. 
It's the word we often use to talk about how our cities and neighborhoods are changing as investment begins to flow in. Sometimes the signs of it are obvious. The large housing development with price points so high no one in the neighborhood can afford it. Other times, it's something a little more subtle and slow. The new hip coffee shop, the art crawl bringing in new faces to the neighborhood, or the Spanish immersion program that's suddenly become highly competitive. While the sudden influx of wealth and development into certain neighborhoods may seem like a good thing on paper, quite often it also means the displacement of the residents who have been living there for generations. According to a 2020 study, the San Diego metro area is the 14th most intensely gentrifying metro in the country. So what does that really mean for the people of San Diego? Let's talk about it. Join me, Christina Kim, KPBS's race and equity reporter, on Wednesday, December 8th at 6 p.m. for an online community conversation with Tao Baraka, a barber and resident of Southeast San Diego, Julie Corales of the Environmental Health Coalition, Isaac Martin of UC San Diego, and you. Visit kbbs.org to register. See you there. It's one of Southern California's most distinctive and unique landmarks. The two massive silos nestle just south of San Clemente and steps from the ocean. It's almost a visual halfway point when making the drive from San Diego to Disneyland. And over the years, we've covered the long and slow process of deactivating the San Onofre power plant. And it still may be many years before it's erased from the landscape. Not many reporters get a behind-the-scenes look at this demolition, but NBC San Diego's Joe Little got an in-person tour this week and he's here to tell us all about what he saw. Hey, Joe. Hello. How you doing, buddy? Doing good. Doing good. Great to have you here. Okay, so let's get into it. How did this tour come together? Was there sort of something in particular that staff at San Onofre, did they want to show you or were you just working on this request for a while? I I, I think, uh, well, one, I did not work on this for a while. This is one of those situations where my assignment manager said, you're doing this. Uh, But to go back on your question, I believe San Onofre uh, Southern California Edison, which owns it, the property. I think they've uh, they've been working on this because they invited just me and they invited uh, someone from the UT and then someone from the Voice of San Diego to go along. And we were the only ones there. And it was a long tour. Local media has covered this story for a long time, as you know. Uh, while there might not be a lot to say, you know, there's not always a lot to show. How does this sort of access, you know, this behind-the-scenes tour help you add color to what can be sort of a maybe dry topic? Well, it's one of those things that everyone recognizes this landmark. We all have our own dad jokes. We all have our own landmarks. A lot of people <laughs> you drive up and down the five that it's, that's our landmark. We know we're either almost there or halfway there, or it's just that landmark where all the dads and kids point and say, ha, ha, ha. But I think because thousands and thousands of us drive by it every day, it's there's, but we've very few of us have had a chance to go and walk around it, stand at its base and look up and just sort of see what goes on there. It pulls back the cool curtain on it. And, and one of the things that just, even though there's, not a lot of moving parts. It's not incredibly sexy. It's a it's a huge chunk of concrete out there. Just getting that access and going and taking people's eyes places they never get to go is is is, is really the story to show the progress of what's going on. But I also believe that Southern California California Edison also wanted to do it so that they can reassure people that they are doing everything in their power to do this long, long process 
safely. Okay, so tell me a little bit more about what you learned on your tour. You know, is the demolition on schedule? Do we know how long it's going to take? My God, <laughs> talk about a slow process. They're, the number they gave me is 100 billion pounds of garbage, of concrete, metal, wood that they're taking out of there. And it's so much that they have to take away that they are building their own railroad yard right there on site. So the, they, they created a fork off the railroad tracks that the, 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 the Amtrak goes on and it goes right into their yard. And they're creating this, this system in there so that they could load up railroad cars worth of waste to take out of here. And one of the cool things I learned is that 100% of everything that existed at San Onofre from the desks and chunks of concrete all the way up to the radioactive spent fuel rods fuel cells, all of it will be leaving the state of California. Nothing will stay here. And so for those who use those as sort of visual markers when they're driving on the freeway, it sounds like that those silos aren't going to be gone for at least a few more years. Uh, 2028. So 2027, they said, is when they expect to begin putting jackhammers into the side of those silos. They look like domes from the highway, but they're actually two silos to burst anyone's bubble. Um, they expect them to both be gone. They're called unit two and unit three by the end of 2028. So those landmarks will be gone forever in the next six to seven years. You've been reporting here in San Diego for a while and people who follow your work or your social media presence know that you're a passionate and accomplished visual storyteller. And you do a lot of work teaching colleagues through the NPPA. That's the National Press Photographers Association. Uh, for a story like this, how do you approach it from a visual standpoint? For this one, because this one is is different, this was a challenge for me because I usually like to take people up close with super up close shots and and natural sound, letting people hear the noise of what's going on. For this thing, it's just a, it's it's more the grandeur of what was there. Everything there is so huge, so I had to take a step back, literally and figuratively zoom out with my camera and hit record to let people see the enormity of these things to see what they look like from the other side of the, of the silos to let them see the old generators that have now been the turbines and the generator that have now been uncovered and, and they're being hit by the elements now um, just to show those people that this is what it is. There's not too many close-ups available in a place like that. One of the cool things and most important things about our job is to take people places and their eyes places that they don't usually go or see. We take in, in television and in and, and photojournalism, we take your eyeballs places they don't go. Well, this is like literally taking you on the other side of the famous San Onofre domes and showing you what's going on, what they look like now. And, you know, this might be your last look at these domes before they are torn down forever. Joe Little is a multimedia journalist for NBC7 here in San Diego. He's on Twitter and Instagram at LittleJoeTV. Thanks so much for your time, Joe. Yeah, Matt. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's edition of KPBS Roundtable. And thank you to my guests, Jonathan Wozen from the San Diego Union Tribune, sports writer and broadcaster Lee Hacksaw Hamilton, and Joe Little from NBC San Diego. If you missed any part of our show, you can listen anytime on the KPBS Roundtable podcast. I'm Matt Hoffman. Join us next week on Roundtable. 
KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu.